I'm Mark Lynch. This is the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today, our book feature is by Justin Sean of the University of Virginia. Uh, he'll be talking about his new book, Surviving the War in Syria, Survival Strategies in a Time of Conflict, just published by Cambridge University Press. We'll also hear from Tarek Massoud of the Harvard Kennedy School uh, and the director of their Middle East Initiative. He will be talking about his new article in the Journal of Democracy, The Arab Spring at 10, Kings or People? Finally, we hear, we'll hear from Justin Gangler, who is one of the authors, along with Mark Tesler, Russell Lucas, and Jonathan Forney, of a new article in the British Journal of Political Science called Why Do You Ask? The Nature and Impacts of Attitudes Toward Public Opinion Surveys in the Arab World. Uh, thanks for listening to our show. This is the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Tarek Massoud, Director of the Middle East Initiative at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of the new article, The Arab Spring at 10, Kings or People uh, in the Journal of Democracy. Tarek, it's so good to have you here. Thanks, Mark, for having me. Great to talk to you. So uh, tell us about this article, Kings or People. What I was trying to do in this article was take stock of where the Arab world is uh, 10 years after the a start of the Arab Spring. And it really seemed to me that the region was is torn between these two competing visions of progress. And on the one hand, the there is the democratic project, uh, which was, we saw birthed uh, during the Arab Spring, or at least came to, to, uh, to global attention during the Arab Spring. And then the other project though, and this is the Kings and the Kings are people, uh, title is the project of the so-called modernizing dictators or enlightened absolutists who are now promising their people that they're going to use the authoritarian power of the state not to enrich themselves or in, entrench their power, but to bring to the region the progress and modernity and global influence that the people of the region have long demanded. And you see the autocrats as currently on the offensive and quite confident. I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, what, what struck me when I was thinking about how the world looked to us uh, 10 years ago, it was that the autocrats were these ossified um, uh, uh, actors who were completely bereft of any ideas. And it was really the Democrats that had all of the momentum, all of the grand visions for the future. For me, it was a measure of how just completely uh, wrong-footed these autocrats were by the, the Arab Spring and by this flowering of democratic demands that, you know, they couldn't really muster much in the way of counter-protests. It was, it was hard in 2011 to get passionate about uh, these autocrats. You, you know, how, how are you going to, who's going to really take to the streets uh, in favor of Hosni Mubarak, except for maybe a small number of, uh, of people? Um, today, the autocrats seem to me to be much more assertive. And I think that this assertiveness comes from the fact that they do recognize, I mean, first of all, there's been a change in personnel in many of these places, but these autocrats do recognize that the old ruling formula just was not working, that the reason that the Middle East today is a place that does not offer opportunity to its young people, a place that is uh, largely a victim of global forces rather than a shaper of what happens internationally. All of this is a result of decades of uh, mismanagement. And so 
what they are offering is an exit from that. And they, and, and some of this is quite appealing to people. So if you look at the, one of the kind of poster boys for this type of autocratic uh, modernization, somebody like Mohammed bin Salman, who you and I know, of course, as the perpetrator of one of the most horrific crimes of the last few years, which is the murder of uh, Gamal Khashoggi. Well, to the average Saudi, he's known as the guy who finally broke the wheel of Wahhabism in his country mm-hmm. and is responsible for reforms that are allowing women to drive and to seek employment and to travel. And that is opened the country up to uh, tourism and to the broader world. And, and that to me, in, an, in, an, uh, in a way, I think what these autocrats are doing to differing degrees is responding in their own way to some of the demands that underpinned the Arab Spring. They're saying, we understand that you want something different, we're not going to give you democracy. We don't think that's the way for us to have progress. But we certainly don't think that it matters should sail on or that we don't need change. And you see this as, as much a cultural project as an economic or political one. Uh, in fact, I, I'd say the cultural project is maybe the most serious bit of the project in that you re- particularly when it comes to uh, educational reforms that I think these autocrats view as draining the well of uh, Islamist sentiment. So I think they have a theory, which in an odd way is sort of congruous with all of the most quote unquote orientalist theories of Islamism, right? That, you know, people support Islamist parties because they have certain backward hidebound understandings of religion. Uh, Clearly, these autocrats think that. And so if you were to look at the educational programs of somebody like Egypt's President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi or uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, there's a lot of attention to critical thinking and religious reform. And it's explicitly tied to this project of making the uh, making the people less receptive to political Islam or to the project of Islamist parties like the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, yeah. one of my one of our, our our mutual friends actually said to me, you know, Tark, I don't really see them as uh, responding to political Islam because, of course, they have their own projects that you know, merge Islam and politics. So it's much more about fighting the Muslim Brotherhood than necessarily saying that religion has no role in politics. After all, Mohammed bin Salman has no hesitation to use the clerics when he needs to. And the same is true of Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. But it's really this cultural project of trying to uh, um, render the terrain inhospitable to groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. So the, 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 the poster child uh, for this, uh, this new model that you see of these enlightened autocrats is uh, maybe not Mohammed bin Salman, but maybe um, uh, the UAE and Mohammed bin Zayed. And, um, and uh, one of the questions that obviously arises is, can that be replicated in a place that isn't uh, you know, tiny and extremely wealthy with a highly competent state? Uh, can, can, can you do that kind of project in a place like Egypt or beyond? That's a, a fantastic question. You know, the, the, the other thing I would say that makes 
the UAE a little bit different from these other countries, or a lot different from these other countries, is in fact that uh, Mohammed bin Zayed isn't really even the start, although of course he, he does stand as, as one of the exemplars of this particular form of autocratic leadership. But even his father, uh, Sheikh Zayed, was a different kind of um, a different kind of autocrat, and you know, uh, the scholar uh, uh, Calvert Jones has written a great book about uh, some of the social and economic reforms mm -hmm. that the UAE has undertaken, and uh, in 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 sort of the variant of this kind of uh, uh, of leadership that we've been talking about. But uh, the short answer to your question, Mark, is uh, I don't think so. You know. It's not simply that the obstacles in a country like Egypt, which is 100 million people, are much greater, the fact that Egypt doesn't have vast oil wealth. Um, but the ideas uh, the, uh, aren't there either, right? So when Egypt's president tries to mirror the United Arab Emirates, his idea of how you do it is you build a big city in the desert that looks like nothing so much as a poor man's version of Dubai or Abu Dhabi. Right. He doesn't think that, well, the reason that the UAE actually has a competent state or was able to build a pretty competent bureaucracy, the reason that the UAE has a pretty vibrant economy that may even become more vibrant if some of these reforms that they're uh, pushing through come to fruition, uh, uh, is because they're open to the world, right? You have, you know, you have the, you have, uh, you know, much of the bureaucratic apparatus peopled by uh, uh, folks from outside of the region, you have free, um, you know, uh, you have um, sort of like free trade zones in which, you know, they operate according to, you know, global law, Western laws and global standards. Um, you could never convince uh, the leaders of a country like Egypt to adopt those kinds of reforms that open up your country to the world and that actually force you to cede some, some economic power. Um, it just that it seems like a very hard thing or an unlikely thing to attain in a country like Egypt, where in fact, what are we seeing? As he'd say, it documents how we're seeing the aggrandizement of the economic role of the military. You look at a place like Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia doesn't have Egypt's overweening military, but you may have an analog of it in the form of this big sovereign wealth fund, the PIF, that sort of you know throws its weight around domestically and crowds out uh, any local competition. So in these places, you have this kind of state-led, highly centralized model of development that may be trying to copy some of the form of what they observe in the United Arab Emirates, but very little of the substance. Well, so the flip side of this kind of renewed confidence or the kind of this assertiveness of the uh, these new of these autocracies is uh, the fate of the other competing projects, the democratic project, the Islamist project. And uh, you seem to be of, of multiple minds on, on that one, how down and out uh, those projects, especially the democratic project is these days. Yeah, well, you know, part of this article really does represent, Mark, uh, a reassessment of uh, my own view about where the democratic project uh, is in the region, where the democratic potentiality lies. I think it's fair to say that after the uh, uh, quote unquote, uh, you know, what what people like me have called the failure of the Arab Spring, but which I'm now convinced uh, is more properly called a hiatus um, mm -hmm. in Egypt, I was very, um, uh, I found myself uh, uh, retreating to 
a structuralist argument that would have us believe that the endeavor was always doomed, that these are places that are just too behind. They're just too um, um, racked by poverty, by state weakness, uh, to actually make a go of democracy. And in a way, I still believe that kind of the kind of democracy that you have in South Korea may not yet be on the cards for a country like Egypt. But that doesn't mean that Egypt cannot be far more pluralistic and democratic than it currently is. And um, the fact is that we saw millions of people express a genuine desire for a more participatory politics in which they uh, get to choose their leaders or at least hold them to account. And those demands have not gone away. And so, um, you know, the, you know, the, the scholar, um, the late scholar Al Stepan made this point many years ago with Graham Robertson that if you just look at the economic indicators, the Arab world is actually a punches far below its weight in terms of the amount of electoral democracy that they should have. And if you look at the data today, you get the same kind of picture. And so that to me uh, is a very powerful indication of the scope for uh, the kind of agency and change that I had in my gloom after uh, the uh, uh, you know downfall uh, of democratic experiments in some parts of the Arab world. Uh, in my gloom, I was just not uh, prepared to or was not able to see. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting little um, uh, statistical analysis showing uh, the underperformance uh, relative to uh, all the various indicators of size and wealth and you know level of development and, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you look at a country like, um, you know, Egypt, it, it, there, there is no reason that it should be this, uh, you know, very closed hegemonic regime. I mean, the, if you just compare Egypt's level of electoral democracy, I'm not talking about liberal democracy, I'm using the a much lower standard, it punches far below its weight. And so, um, you know, that to me is a, you know, was a kind of hopeful uh, indication, you know. I will also say that there was a a little bit of alarm uh, that came out of that same analysis, and that shows that Tunisia punches a little bit above its weight. Now, of course, you know I'm not accounting for uncertainty here, and so you know the the difference between where Tunisia should be and where it is is maybe not statistically significant, but nonetheless, that you know that also did remind me, you know, if agency matters and if agency can get us to a uh, a greater margin of political competition. Well, in the case of Tunisia, it's possible that the decisions of actors, the behaviors of political parties, etc., could result in a retrenchment of democracy. And so that's why I really found myself in the end of that article emphasizing the importance of the Tunisian experiment, because you know it's it's the case that the Tunisian experiment. We, you know, somebody like me who's who's a, primarily a done his fieldwork in Egypt. I look at Tunisia as a dream. I would love it if Egypt had that level of uh, uh, electoral democracy. Uh, but if you talk to Tunisians, uh, they have a lot of criticisms about the democratic system that they're operating under, and really are straining under the that system's inability to have really delivered the kind of growth and takeoff that they were hoping for. And so, for me it became very clear that what what we need to do is strengthen the Tunisian 
uh, example for other Arab countries. I would love it if people in Morocco and Algeria and in Egypt looked at Tunisia and said, well, those people transitioned to democracy and a whole bunch of great things happened. Well, we've been speaking with Tarek Massoud of the Harvard Kennedy School about his uh, fascinating and important article in the Journal of Democracy, uh, Kings or People, the Arab Spring at 10. Tarek, thanks for joining us. Mark, thank you very much. This is the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined now by Justin Gengler of the Social and Economic Survey Research Institute of Qatar University. He's the author, along with Mark Tesler of the University of Michigan, uh, Russell Lucas of the James Madison College at Michigan State University, and Jonathan Forney of Forcier Consulting of a new article, Why Do You Ask? The Nature and Impacts of Attitudes Towards Public Opinion Surveys in the Arab World, recently published by the British Journal of Political Science. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be doing this again. So tell us uh, about the article. Um, what, uh, what do you want people to know about uh, attitudes towards public opinion surveys in the Arab world? Sure. So as you know, I've been doing opinion surveys in the region, uh, the Arab Gulf in particular, since 2008, 2009, and uh, both in Bahrain, Qatar, uh, Kuwait, a few different countries in the region. And the, the real motivation for this project came out of me trying to present the results of opinion surveys and um, statistical findings based on data collected in the region at international conferences. And, and universally, especially early on when opinion surveying in, in the Gulf region in particular was rare, I would get a first one or two comments asking how I could possibly trust these data coming from the region where uh, it was assumed that people knew little about surveys, were very disinclined to participate, uh, were suspicious of people doing surveys, wouldn't give truthful answers because of the authoritarian context, and so on. And so I'd end up spending a lot of time justifying the method or justifying the whole idea of doing opinion surveys in the autocratic gulf and not talking much about the substance of the papers. And so it motivated a grant proposal, along with the, the co-authors you mentioned, to study attitudes towards public opinion surveys in uh, the Middle East, using the case of, of Qatar as, as the venue for the survey. And if you can believe it, there is a long history of surveys on surveys or polls on polls um, in other contexts, especially Western Europe. Uh, but this is the first study done in, in the Middle East. So tell us about the survey, um, how you constructed it, and uh, what are some of the key findings? Sure. So there are a few things we we're interested in. One is this question that I uh, introduced already, which is, is it true that Arabs or people from Arab countries or people from the Middle East or people from authoritarian countries as a group have systematically more negative or just systematically different attitudes towards surveys compared to other people? And if so, on what particular dimensions or from what perspective, from what angle are they more negative vis-a-vis -vis public opinion research? So that's one thing is just answering that question. And then the other, uh, the second part of the question is trying to understand what the practical implications of, of those attitudes are. So how do they impact participation and how do they impact answers given in surveys, assuming someone agrees to participate? And, and you break this down because in Qatar, you're able to get a quite diverse sample. Yeah, exactly. So Qatar is a perfect place to do this survey. 
Um, I've utilized this approach in, in a couple projects now. You essentially have what you could call a quasi cross-national sample within Qatar itself. I think something like 52 different nationalities are represented in our sample of non-citizens. So we have separate sampling uh, for technical reasons of Qatari nationals and non-nationals who make up the majority, vast majority of the population, around 85%. So in our sample alone, a nationally representative sample of the non-citizen population of Qatar, we had 52 nationalities and I think 17 out of the 22 member states of the Arab League. So almost all the Arab world was represented. And then you break it down between kind of Arab expatriates and then non-Arab expatriates. Exactly. So we try to disaggregate between not just are you Arab or, or, or non-Arab, but then uh, these other geographical cultural categories. So being from the West, being from South Asia, being from East Asia, to try to understand how attitudes towards surveys might differ across these populations and also how the impacts of those attitudes might differ on participation and, and uh, non-response. So let's run through the, the hypotheses that you set out to test. Sure. So the first um, hypothesis is about participation in a survey and the impact of uh, survey attitudes on that participation. Mm -hmm. We are able to identify six separate dimensions of attitudes towards surveys. Five of these dimensions had been discovered or identified in previous studies in, in Western context, and those are about survey enjoyment, the extent to which a person enjoys participating in surveys, survey value, the extent to which someone values surveys and the data that they give for society, um, survey integrity or reliability, the perceived reliability of surveys as a method, survey burden, to what extent people see surveys as burdensome from a cognitive or time standpoint, um, and also survey privacy or the privacy implications of survey. These are dimensions that have previously been identified again in Western contexts and especially Western uh, European countries. And we confirmed that those same five dimensions exist using factor analysis in, um, in Qatar and in the, the, the distinct cultural geographical groupings that we observe. On the other hand, we observe one additional dimension of survey attitudes, which has not been looked for or, or identified in other contexts, which is the perceived intentions of a survey. What does the respondent believe the survey is aiming to do, um, either from a positive perspective or potentially from a negative perspective? And we have a lot of examples of uh, politicized surveys or outright uh, fabricated surveys to serve political ends. And these, these are real concerns, especially in, in our region. And then, okay, so then you've got the you've got a conjoint where you ask them about their intentions. Yeah. So the, what, what would affect the likelihood of their participation? Right. So we don't have data on people who don't participate in our survey, right? So we can't directly model non-response in the survey. So what we do instead is we have a conjoint uh, in the survey, conjoint experiment where we ask people to what extent they would be likely to participate in a hypothetical survey with randomized attributes. And some of the attributes are um, things like uh, mode, length, uh, topic, and things that from the methodological literature we think would impact um, participation irrespective of the person's social identity or social category. We also include though a final uh, treatment, which is the sponsor of the survey. 
Uh, and this gets to this survey intentions dimension that we identify. So we might think that people would attribute a different intention to the survey based on the sponsor. So a university sponsor versus a governmental sponsor versus an international sponsor and so on. And then the other thing we do is beyond looking at these objective attributes of surveys, we also look how generalized attitudes towards survey research, not towards this particular survey in the vignette, but towards surveys in general, explain participation behavior. So uh, the interesting thing that comes out of that is that we do see that things like the topic of the survey um, do have an impact on participation. So surveys on political topics, for example, uh, dampen participation intentions among all the groups in our surveys. Uh, likewise, the sponsor strongly impacts participation among Arab participate, participants in our survey, but among non-Arabs, they're not concerned with the sponsor. There's actually no treatment effects at all um, between any of the sponsors that we include in our vignette, which means that they're less attuned to who's actually carrying out the research compared to, to Arab respondents. And beyond these specific treatments in the conjoint, we look at the independent impact of attitudes beyond the characteristics of an individual survey. And we find that these attitudes also strongly mediate participation in surveys. Um, and the, the interesting implication of that is that regardless of the particular survey request that a person receives, the underlying attitudes they have towards survey, survey research strongly impact whether or not they agree to participate. So it's not only the kinds of things that uh, the particular survey is about, that they're asked to participate in, it's their preconceived notion of survey research that drives participation. That's interesting. And so tell us, um, you know, what are the other like major differences you, you observed between Qataris, non-Qatari Arabs and, uh, and, and the other expatriates? Yeah, so um, we have a, a final part of the paper where we try to drill down into the practical impacts of these survey attitudes for uh, responses given in surveys, the actual responses people give, uh, and the willingness to continue to the end of the survey and continue answering questions. So this kind of gets to this issue of um, you know, sensitivity and, and whether people are willing to, to cooperate and, and participate through, throughout the entire interview. And here we see a real divergence in the impacts of survey attitudes according to these three categories that you mentioned. And what we find is that, uh, in this experiment that we designed to, to get at, at non-response, we call it the birthday experiment, where uh, we tell someone upfront that they're entering the final section of the survey. And due to the length of the this, this final section, we're only asking half of respondents to, to participate. And the basis for that decision of, of whether the person's asked to participate is on the basis of their birthday. And so only people who've had their birthdays in the past six months are, will continue to this final lengthy section. And the people who've not had their birthday in the last six months will terminate the interview at that point. And so the hypothesis is that people who have more negative attitudes towards surveys on, on one or more dimensions will be more likely to drop out at that point and lie about when their birthday is so that they could end the interview. And since we don't ask people to report the month of their birthday, they can lie without fear of being caught in this kind of lie. Uh, and it's interesting. What we find is that um, people do tend to lie about their birthday to get out of the interview, but the reasons they do it are different according to these, these social categories. So for non-Arabs in our sample, uh, grouping together all the different non-Arabs, so South Asians, Westerners, East Asians, 
Uh, what we find is that the, the main determinant of whether or not a person continues on to this final section of the survey, and so they give a truthful answer about their birthday, um, is the perceived time burden of surveys. So if you think a survey is too long, it's taking a lot of your time, it's maybe cognitively burdensome, you're less likely to uh, opt into this final section of the survey. This is pretty much in line with the standard literature on survey attitudes, looking at sort of these nuts and bolts issues of duration, burden, um, how challenging it is to answer questions. So that, that results sticks for non-Arabs. For Arabs, on the other hand, perceived time burden or other type of burden of the survey has no impact on whether or not they agree to, to enter into the final section of the survey. The only survey attitude dimensions that determine that decision are the perceived intentions of the survey. So what is this survey getting at, which a person forms over the course of the interview, and the perceived reliability of surveys as a method, as a social scientific method. And so it really goes to show how the, the calculations about participation in surveys really vary depending on where a person's coming from and how they've been socialized. That's interesting. So uh, I guess last question then, big picture, you know, what do these findings mean for, for, for the enterprise of doing survey research in the Arab world or more broadly? Uh, I think there are two parts to that question. One is, what can these particular data tell us about that? And another one is, is, is speaks to a, a, the larger motivation of this project, which has a few other components, which I'm working on now, and maybe I can, I can say a bit about. Uh, in terms of this paper and the, the kinds of practical implications and suggestions that come out of it, we point out that traditional concern over um, mode questions, so length and uh, telephone versus face-to-face, -face, and these kinds of issues, cognitive burden, uh, perceived time burden, these might be important for certain members of the population and, and certainly in maybe the, the Western context especially, but moving as survey research moves to the Middle East and the Arab world, other types of considerations become more important from a design standpoint. So maybe we don't have to be such sticklers on keeping a survey to 30 minutes or a 10 minute phone survey. Maybe there's more um, flexibility on duration, but we need to pay much more attention on sponsorship, for example, and also signaling in the questions and in the sponsorship and in other uh, visible ways, positive intentions of the surveys. The, the, the survey is a, a legitimate um, data collection effort that is meant to inform academics or, or researchers. It's not going to be used in some nefarious way or in a politicized way, um, that those kinds of design decisions, which are maybe not things that survey researchers have paid so much attention to are really critical uh, to this region. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part of the answer um, is going beyond the question of survey attitudes to try to understand how people in this part of the world, and, and again, using Qatar as a, a case where you have an easy way to compare people from Arab countries to, to, to non-Arabs, uh, how they conceive the whole idea of public opinion. So how do people define how do people think about public opinion and to what extent are those conceptions about public opinion related to attitudes towards surveys and also um, political conditions where people are socialized? So is it, for example, do we see that living in an authoritarian context or growing up in an authoritarian context systematically changes the way that people 
view and understand what public opinion is all about and how that interacts with, with surveys and survey research. Well, it's so interesting. Uh, uh, we've been speaking with Justin Gangler of Cessary at Qatar University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. the POMAP's Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch. We're joined on this week's book segment by Justin Sean. He's a postdoctoral research associate at the Democratic Statecraft Lab at the University of Virginia, the author of the brand new book, Surviving the War in Syria, Survival Strategies in a Time of Conflict, uh, published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, Justin, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me. So tell us about the book. What motivated you to write this? And what do you think the most important contribution of the book is going to be? Yeah, so um, I, I, I was motivated to write this because so um, originally, as I was getting started with my dissertation research, I was really interested in, in trying to really specify the, the role of violence during conflict in, in causing migration. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought at, at the time that, that I, w- I would have a very heavily quantitative um, project and, uh, and I, I would um, have a lot of regressions and call it, call it a day. But I realized upon starting to do some interviews with Syrian refugees in, in Jordan during the summer of 2014, that the story ne- needed to be broadened out to not just thinking through migration as a response to violence, but in thinking through what is the full repertoire of, of strategies that civilians are, are considering. This led me to the book that I have now, where I develop a broader argument about how civilians select specific survival strategies, not just binary considerations of whether to move or not. And you, and when you talk about survival strategies now, it's very interesting that uh, you, you move away from questions of whether to join the fighting um, or to leave and really focus on that, you know, that group of people who they don't wanna fight, um, they just wanna survive. And that's an interesting focus for you to choose. Yeah, so I think that um, we have have had um, a a, a long interest, especially within political science and kind of focusing on on decisions of of whether to to join into the violence. And I think that there's room to to kind of consider this this flip side as, as you brought up of of think, thinking about how civilians who don't want to be part of the violence are are choosing their own actions, and I think that um, that there we, we get into a large portion of the civilian population that kind of wants to do anything they can to not be part of, of the conflict whatsoever. And so you, you, you focus on two main uh, survival strategies, uh, but tell us a little bit about the full repertoire of things that, that you see civilians maybe doing in order to avoid getting caught up in the fighting. Yeah, so, uh, so kind of um, this 
and enters into a, a literature that, that is, is currently um, developing across social science disciplines, uh, thinking through civilian self-protection, um, some of which includes um, uh, violent activity, but could also include um, nonviolent activity as work from people like Oliver Kaplan shows. Um, and, and then we, we get into the focus of my book on, uh, on non-engagement or, or what I call in my book, survival strategies, where we are thinking about um, actions that could include migration, but also include things like community support, hiding, short-term movement, um, and, uh, and um, a, a wide variety of, of, of other actions where civilians are actively avoiding any kind of interaction with armed groups. Yeah, and it's really interesting. You're talking about uh, silence, um, compliance, prayer, just a whole set of things, which actually it makes a lot of sense when you think about just normal people. Absolutely, yeah. So the two that you really focus on in the book then are what you call community service and migration. Uh, let's set migration aside for the moment and really focus on what do you mean by community service and how does that work as a survival strategy? Yeah, so, um, so as, I, as I talk about community support- Community support, I'm sorry. Uh, sure, sure. Um, there's an interest here in, in thinking through how how civilians, uh, in in many cases, try to 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 come together to help each other peer to peer in in in, in coping with all of the um, violence and insecurity around them. So um, we have um, examples from from all kinds of cases, such as um, Natalie Williams doing research in. Nepal, who, who, who found um, some, some very clear direct evidence of, of community organizations getting formed for purposes like microfinance to, to, to help people overcome some, some economic uh, uncertainty. And in, in Syria itself, I also found that, uh, that a lot of civilians are, are taking direct action to to help each other. The, the specific action that, that I analyze in, in my book is sharing information about security conditions. So this could include things like people telling each other about violent events or battles going on in, in their neighborhoods or telling each other about where uh, new checkpoints have, have, have been set up that, that could make a particular route home or route to work more dangerous than usual. That, that category of action is, is really important for civilians to help each other survive as a, as a group where they may not be able to do it on their own. That's really, that's really interesting. And then um, before we get to the migration part, um, let's explore the community support just a little bit more. Um, when, because you have a whole argument about when people are likely to uh, to engage in that kind of activity, walk us through that a little bit. Um, what 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 makes a person choose that rather than simply silence or compliance? Great question, and I think that that. Um, 
the, the place to start here is in pointing out that um, while uh, sharing in information with your, your peers might, might seem like a relatively mundane activity, particularly when it's just happening in a word of mouth, person to person conversation. Um, this is an act that, that can actually become extremely dangerous in Syria where, where we have this um, widely recognized expression that quote, the walls have ears. This, this is something that people like um, Lisa Wadeen have, have, have written about extensively uh, where um, the, the, the Syrian government for a long time has, has had this, this internal intelligence strategy of, of having informants throughout the, the country so that, so that they kind of create this fear that if you say the wrong thing and the wrong person hears it, that, that you're suddenly at great risk of, of getting imprisoned. Um, kind of no, having, having this idea of, of risk in, in, in the back of everyone's minds, um, that, that then means that um, in order for, for somebody to be willing to share information with their peers, I found that they needed to not only have the motivation to do so, they also had to feel had to feel like they had the opportunity to do so safely. Mm-hmm. Um, that opportunity uh, gets us into uh, an, an aspect of uh, of social status in Syria, where I get into the concept of wasta. And so, what did you mean by that then, in the Syrian context? Yeah, so WASTA is a is a concept that we can find in in many countries throughout the Middle East and, and North Africa that broadly refers to uh, to the idea of of having advantaged social status. This could occur through having a, a lot of money, or it could happen through having um, connections with powerful people, and the the mix of whether WASTA comes from money or connections can vary across countries or over time. Um, and and kind of the importance then of having this advantaged social status through WASTA um, co- comes in where if, if somebody is, is able to, to show that, that they have WASTA, they can, they can leverage that um, as a form of pr- protection to, to help deter the, the government and, and armed groups from, uh, from, from imposing some form of repression on them. Well, let's, um, let's then move to the migration uh, decision then, because I think some of the, in, in your analysis of this, some of the same categories come into play then. Um, you know, what, what motivates a decision to uh, choose migration rather than this kind of community support? Yeah, so, so this was something where I, I realized that, it was, that for, for a while that there was a little bit of a struggle in analyzing this because community support and migration are not necessarily clean sub- substitutes for each other. They, they can be substitutes, but community support and migration uh, could be complements for each other as well, especially when we think about things like uh, 
people sending remittances back home after they have completed migration. But when community support and migration are, are substitutes for each other, we can think about this in terms of, of people perhaps um, trying to support community members uh, and, and join together with their peers for as long as they can. And then at, at some point, they might lose their, their, their faith in their community's ability to help them stay safe. And kind of at that point, in, in a moment that I refer to as narrative rupture in, in the book, people may lose their, their understanding of how to stay safe, their kind of faith that, uh, that joining together with their peers can really continue to successfully keep them safe. And then at that moment, I argue, um, people tend to choose migration. Now, that's, um, that's a, a good uh, point, I think, for us to take a step back, because it, you, you pointed out that uh, many of these decisions are not kind of clean cut, either or types of choices. And uh, you mentioned in the book, just how difficult it is to observe these kinds of behaviors, um, and to actually reconstruct uh, how people, not, not just how people made their decisions, but even what decisions they made. So tell us a little bit about the research that you did and, um, and uh, you know, kind of how did you go about trying to unpack uh, these kinds of individual level, often hidden decisions? Yeah, so, so this is where um, we, we very understandably for all kinds of important reasons uh, can't, as researchers, travel inside of Syria. Um, and the, the kind of next best thing research-wise is, is for us to, to learn from refugees who have left Syria and, and entered countries like Jordan, Turkey, uh, or Lebanon, uh, as, as well as many others at, at, at this point. And, and, and talk to Syrians who have um, reached these other countries where we can have conversations much more safely. Um, this, is, this is also a point that people like Wendy Perlman have made that, uh, that refugees are an extremely valuable source for learning as much as we can about um, how people are living inside of Syria. Um, so, so having interviews with with refugees has it has its own set of methodological and ethical considerations. But I think that it's it's very important that we realize that uh, that if we want to learn as much as we can about the uh, the micro level decisions that that individuals are are making during conflict that refugees themselves are a really important group of people for us to talk to. Now, it was interesting in, in the book, you talked about the kind of the iterated nature of the research design as you kind of learned as you were, as you were doing about how to ask questions. So walk us through that a little bit, uh, going from Jordan to Turkey um, and you know, how you went about adapting to what you were hearing from refugees. Yeah. So. Um, so this is something that uh, that I'm I'm eager for political science and the social sciences in general to to keep talking more about. Where uh, 
Um, my, my first fieldwork trip was to Jordan in, in 2014. And, uh, and going in with a set of questions that I thought would be the most important questions um, before starting fieldwork, understandably led to some questions uh, being received well and, and generating um, important and valuable conversation and other questions either not being received well, not being understood, or not, not really um, generating very, very much informative conversation. And, and I think that a, a, very, a very important lesson that I learned here is that by, by doing multiple uh, research trips and allowing yourself to revise questions over time, we're able to, to make our, our interviews more relevant, not only for our own research, but also for our respondents as well, so that, so that they can also uh, see and understand the, the value of, of the research that we are doing. I think it's so important, and I agree that, that I think all, uh, all political scientists doing this kind of research, I think, should be as transparent as you are about that process and about what goes into those kinds of conversations. Absolutely, yeah. So um, I want to dig into uh, one part of your argument uh, and analysis that is, is actually, uh, it, it was quite novel to me and uh, something I struggled with a little bit. Uh, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast. And uh, that's when you were talking about the effects of trauma on, uh, on, on the people who go through it. And you introduce um, this, uh, this distinction between uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth, um, which uh, seemed quite novel to me at least in terms of uh, you know, kind of how you, we might think about the psychology of surviving a war like this. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I think that a, a helpful place to start here is that there's there's kind of a, a well-known um, association between having violent experiences and and developing post-traumatic stress, which we are um, rightfully so very concerned about a lot of negative consequences of uh, of large numbers of uh, civilians un undergoing post-traumatic stress, which um, kind of those negative consequences that I'm referring to involve all sorts of antisocial behaviors. So we, we start becoming concerned that people who have undergone post-traumatic stress might be more likely to become violent or kind of not, not participate in, in democratic society in productive ways. Um, and there's a, a, a kind of whole set of, of things that, that we're very concerned about for, for civilians that have undergone trauma in that sense. There's another side of, of trauma that has really um, kind of hit, hits social science much more recently of post-traumatic growth, where in, in some cases, trauma could rather than lead to, to antisocial changes in, in people, could actually uh, trigger some, some pro-social uh, sh shifts 
in people. So I think about um, Christopher Blattman's work as one of the, the earlier pieces in political science that, that, that introduced our discipline to thinking about uh, how um, people with violent experiences in some cases could get more involved in things like nonviolent activism, uh, be, be more active in parts of the democratic process like voting and, and, and choose a wide variety of other uh, pro-social activities. This is something where I, I found in, in my own work also that, that many people who had witnessed violence inside of, of Syria were, were also um, e expressing a lot of, of very pro-social um, attitudes and, and desires to, to help others. And I think that it, it's very, very important as, as we continue to study some of the consequences of violence to, to think through some of the conditions under which some people may undergo post-traumatic stress, whereas others may undergo post-traumatic growth. And did you, did you encounter this like in your interviews and your conversations? Uh, did, did, did you see this kind of divergence in the way people responded uh, to the trauma they had gone through? Yeah, so, so I, I, I definitely did have uh, some conversations where, um, where some of my respondents who had had violent experiences um, really seemed to kind of make it clear that, uh, that they wanted no part of talking about politics, of, of getting involved with, with any kind of community initiatives, that, um, that they, they were clearly very socially withdrawn. Um, whereas I, I, I had other respondents that I spoke with who, who, who were very interested in getting involved with community organizations. There were, there were some people in, in Istanbul that I, I interviewed who were, who were getting involved with, with NGOs and organizations helping other Syrian refugees. And, and so there, there was this, this kind of clear divergence between those who, 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 who were becoming kind of much more uh, socially, socially engaged and, and active, whereas others um, were, were really kind of withdrawing from public life. That's very, very interesting. Um, so I guess the, the last kind of broad set of things we might talk about is that now that you've done this research, published the book, what do you think the significance is for people who study uh, kind of these, these uh, civil war situations? So where would you like to see the literature and uh, the, the academic community go from here to build upon what you've done? Yeah, so going forward, I think that it's very important that we, we find kind of as, as many ways as, as possible to, to turn our analyses of civ civilian behavior during conflict in, into um, analyses that are not binary in nature. So not, uh, not asking kind of whether people flee or not or fight or, or not, but, but instead to start with this premise that wide repertoires of action are, 
are available to civilians and that um, that it is from these these wide repertoires, these wide menus of action that civilians are selecting. So I anticipate that uh, people who are doing quantitative analyses uh, would would benefit from uh, from setting up uh, quantitative models that allow for uh, for this kind of uh, selection behavior and, and qualitative work will continue to benefit from, uh, from allowing for these, these more kind of complex decisions uh, to be made. One of the things I liked about the book is how you um, you consistently uh, you know did a had a comparative perspective and uh, drawing on examples from Yemen. Uh, you talk quite a bit about Yevgeny Finkel's uh, fantastic book on the Holocaust. Um, how do you see this uh, this kind of work traveling out beyond Syria then, and um, you know kind of into these other kinds of conflict settings? Um, particularly in historical settings uh, where perhaps the interview method isn't available. Yeah. So, um, so first of all, for for historical settings, I think that that Kenny Finkel's book is absolutely terrific, and that um, using archival methods seems like um, a a prime way to uh, to analyze um, these kinds of questions uh, for for current topics where we are able to use interview methods. I think that uh, that there are um, several themes from my work that are are worth trying to extend. So, so, so thinking through, um, so I take great care to to analyze a, a version of obtaining advantage social status inside of Syria. Other countries in other cases have have different s- systems through which people may obtain advantaged social status. And I think that it's, it's important for people working on conflict in other cases to, to, to seriously think through um, the, the, the systems that exist there. I would also point out that the, the general framework that I set up of, of starting by acknowledging that civilians are selecting from wide repertoires of possible action is a, a frame that, um, that we can bring to analyzing other conflicts. So I think that there are many really interesting and, and important ways that we can think through extending my argument to other cases. Great. Well, we've been talking with Justin Sean of University of Virginia about his brand new book, Surviving the War in Syria, Survival Strategies in a Time of Conflict. Um, Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks a lot for having me.